ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's a long time since the world has looked quite so volatile, so unstable at the start of a new year. It's no longer a question of whether conflict will spread in the Middle East. It already has. So what will stop it escalating? In Europe, the Russian war grinds on. In the United States, an election that could see the return of Donald Trump and all that entails on the world stage. Maybe no one wants anything worse than this, but mistakes and missteps are always possible. So a frightening question has started to be asked. Are we headed for World War III? How do we avert any chance of that? I'm Hamish McDonald. I'm Geraldine Doog, and that's what we'll explore in this first episode of Global Roaming. Well, hello there and welcome to Global Roaming. This is our new podcast and radio program. And I'm delighted to say that I'm here with Geraldine Doog embarking on this exciting new project. Adventure. Yeah, I'm really thrilled about this. I think you and I have shared a deep curiosity for a long time about not just the world, but Australia's place in it. And really that's the brief that we've been given here to engage in, indulge in the really big sweeping changes that are Mm. unfolding all over the world today and to bring those changes together as a big conversation each week, meet some amazing people with great expertise, deep understanding and knowledge of what's happening in our world. Yes, I think it's a fantastic opportunity, I must say, because I think it'll it's, it'll do Australians good to to think beyond their shores because we, we need to think beyond our shores and, um, you know, enjoy the business of, of knowing more, I think. And is the idea that you kind of come away from this ready to have the dinner party conversation, the catch up over coffee and kind of have some greater insight into all of this chaotic stuff that's unfolding? Well, I mean, I think that's what it is. I think that we see lots of descriptions, this is my take, on what does happen. What we don't hear enough about is what's happening behind the scenes, which I personally want to know a lot more about. And so we've got a bit of a problem with this first episode, right? Because we're not entirely agreed on (laughs) what is actually unfolding on the global stage. And I suppose this question of World War III and how do we avert that, a broader conflagration in the Middle East, you sort of feel is, is a little bit too scary, but I think actually we've got to address what's in front of us. Yes. Look, I am very alert indeed to the idea of people just saying, stop the world, I want to get off, please. And, uh, you know, if you, ABC and others are going to bring it to me every day, well, I just won't watch you, listen to you. Now, that's useless. That's actually totally counterproductive. So I do think there's a lot of news aversion underway at the moment. So I sort of always want to say, what are the ways out? Like, where are people headed who are trying to avert the worst? And I believe there's a lot of news there and that's not given enough priority. So that's what I'm hoping we do. So, yes, we did have a little, you know, character-building discussion about (laughs) how we positioned this first step. And so later on in this episode, we're going to speak to someone that I know if you're listening for the first time, you'll think, goodness me, is that the same guy from the Iraq war, from the invasion of Afghanistan? Later on, we're going to be joined by Ambassador John Bolton, who was an advisor to George W. Bush, famous for being a neocon, uh, obviously then went on to serve under Donald Trump as National Security Advisor. He's got long-standing, hardline views on how to deal with Iran, but I think he's interesting to talk to 
today because in many ways the stuff he's been saying for decades about Iran, Mm. its risk, its potential threat towards a broader regional crisis is actually happening on the ground. Look, I mean, it's terribly challenging to to talk to John Bolton because One's always got Iraq, you know, in the background there. So that's what we've, we're, we're sort of wrestling with. And look, in some ways, as various people have written, there's about 10 different aggravations, <laughs> to put it mildly, all coming together in the Middle East at the moment. It's like that whole October the 7th, followed by the war in Gaza, has exploded the region to all those latent enmities. And so we're into a very, very tricky time. Yeah, the map actually looks incredibly chaotic in the Middle East right now and incredibly dangerous. And increasingly, I think it's hard to see them as separate bursts or pulses of violence that are unrelated or or unconnected. So I wonder if you'll permit me, I know you you don't want a list of everything... Go on. <laughs> that has, has unfolded in yes. recent months. But but I just want to provide a snapshot because I think this will set up our conversation with John Bolton in a way that I think we need to do because the news has been so ferocious and relentless in recent months. So just to just to sum it all up, you've seen Israel repeatedly strike at Iranian targets in Syria. Iranian-backed groups in Syria and Iraq have fired at US targets in those countries. Around Yemen, of course, the Houthis, which are backed by Iran, have been attacking those ships in the Red Sea. And then there's been these retaliatory strikes by the US and the UK with sort of Australian assistance. In just the month of January, Jerry, we've seen Iran carry out a missile and drone attack on Pakistani territory. Pakistan then fired back. Iran fired missiles at what it described as the headquarters of Mossad, that's the Israeli spy agency, in Erbil, which is the Kurdish region, autonomous region of Iraq. Iran also fired missiles into rebel-held parts of Syria. And now they say that was in retaliation to an Islamic State suicide bombing (laughs) inside Iran right at the beginning of January. That was big. That killed something like 94 people. Their biggest attack since the uh, Iranian revolution. And so then... On soil. I, I guess in the background to all of this, you also have Benjamin Netanyahu making his clearest statement yet about his opposition to a Palestinian state in any form. And given the genesis of so much of the anger and the ideological driver for this kind of axis of resistance, I think that can't be ignored. Look, we we won't get stuck on this because it's another whole program. But, you know, I take the view that that will actually hasten his decline, that we actually do have it out on the table now. And I think it's very pessimistic to imagine there are no ways out. I I do wonder whether it needs special people, though, to take you out. I heard that Aaron David Miller, that um, very um, uh, experienced US negotiator, talking on 7.30 actually this week, saying the trouble is we need a Mandela or a de Klerk, a Mandela and de Klerk to sort of cut through, you know, who would have ever thought that was sort of a bit of magic emerging with the apartheid struggle. None of us saw it coming, but it did come. And he he's sort of saying we need special brave people who break the mould and and who sort of punch through, but somebody has got to give the Palestinian a grasp for their own sovereignty in some form, real merit. If that is given, then we're into we're cooking with gas. We're into a different stage. I suppose the other thing here that we need to question is what Australia's engagement with all of this is. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there's been fierce debate about Australia's position when it comes to Israel, Gaza, Hamas, whether or not we support a, a ceasefire, etc. But there's also the bigger question about if this is a broader conflict, 
what's Australia's involvement? And yeah. we're going to get into that with John Bolton because uh, it's clear that Australia has has strode cautiously on this particular matter, has not sent any warships, for example, to the Red Sea. Huge portion of global trade flows through the Red Sea and the Houthis, which is this Shia militia group, uh, which controls much of the northern and western part of, of, of Yemen today, has been attacking cargo ships, they say, in retaliation for what's going on in Gaza. Uh, and Australia has a, a handful of people in the operational headquarters, but nothing more. And so I think the question for Australia is, is that position sustainable given what our broader geopolitical mm. position is in relation to the South China Sea and the need for international assistance, probably from our allies like the United States and the UK, if indeed the South China Sea trade routes uh, come under significant threat. You see, this is where we're going to become so vital, Hamish. <laughs> Two engaged, interested Australians, you know, from this neck of the woods looking on at all of this uh, because you'd have to agree that you hear very little about an Australian perspective. So we're going to provide it. So what about the green shoots here? I mean, I'm cautious to sort of talk about hope and optimism, but for all of this, the Saudis and the Israelis are both publicly acknowledging that they are still interested in normalising relations. Amazing. The Americans are the back channel or the channel for those conversations. And it's not just Saudi that's party to that, other Arab states as well, talking about the possibility of normalised relations with Israel in return for irreversible steps towards Palestinian statehood. And Arab states have put together a plan that has now been presented via the Americans to the Israelis for this. I think it's important to say, well, hope is is not lost. There is still another channel, another pathway that that does exist or, or at least might exist. Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, um, Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, who's been so tireless shuttling back and forth, I mean, he's the, you know, the modern version, we hope, of Kissinger one way and the other. He said at uh, the Davos meeting um, about this profound opportunity for what he called regionalisation in the, in the greater Middle East that we haven't had before. The challenge is realising it. Well, I think that's a good way to set up our conversation with Ambassador John Bolton. He is a former National Security Advisor to Trump. Uh, he served as the US ambassador to the United Nations from 2005 to 6. He served in the administrations of Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, and then, of course, most famously or infamously under George W. Bush and was a key figure in the Iraq war. So uh, we'll continue our conversation afterwards, but here's John Bolton. Ambassador John Bolton, welcome to Global Roaming. Glad to be with you. Look, do you think it is still possible to prevent this set of wars escalating into something much bigger? Which is really to ask you, where do you see this heading? Well, I think it really depends entirely on Iran because I, I think Iran is responsible for initiating the conflicts that we're seeing now. I think this is clearly part of what their uh, Qasem Soleimani, their now deceased uh, head of the Quds Force, has been working on for many years, and that's to put uh, a terrorist groups surrounding Israel to put enormous pressure on them, perhaps weaken them uh, permanently, uh, maybe weaken some of the Gulf Arab states like Saudi Arabia as well. So uh, Hamas didn't wake up uh, on October the 7th and decide to attack Israel on their own. I think this was coordinated by Iran. I think what the Houthis, the, the Hezbollah terrorists are doing, what the Shia militia are doing in Iraq and Syria, all, all, all coordinated by 
uh, Tehran. Now, what their exact objective here is in this particular episode, we can't say. But uh, it's very clear to me that Iran didn't uh, arm, equip, train, and finance these terrorist groups uh, for them to take action on their own. They did it, Iran did it, so that they would take action at their behest. And I think that's what's going on. I think the West, and particularly the United States, uh, have not used adequate force against Iran, which since October 7th has paid no cost at all for the activity of its proxies. And until Iran begins to feel pain, it will continue to inflict uh, casualties and damage on others. So are you, are you calling, as you have before, for a U.S. attack on mainland Iran rather than its proxies? Is that your underlying message? Precisely. Let's take the example of the Houthis, who have uh, effectively closed the Red, Red Sea and the Suez Canal to most maritime traffic. Uh, the United States and Great Britain have now conducted yet another raid against them, uh, and yet the Houthis continue to use the missiles and drones given them by Iran. What, why is it that Iran is, is content to have this happen? Because these proxies are expendable to Iran. Uh, the, 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 the damage, the casualties they bear don't affect Iran directly. Uh, we don't even deter the Houthis at this point. Think of that. The United States does not deter the Houthis in Yemen, let alone the Ayatollahs in Tehran. Uh, they have inflicted casualties on Americans. We had two SEALs die recently as part of this operation. We've had uh, over 150 raids, attacks on American military and civilian facilities in Syria uh, and Iraq since October the 7th. We've responded with six or seven pinprick uh, retaliations in Iraq. Iran looks at that pattern and says, we are home free. So John, wouldn't a direct attack on Iran by the United States, perhaps with its allies, escalate this beyond a tipping point? Well, I don't know what a tipping point is for Iran, but their proxy Hamas killed 1,200 Israelis on October the 7th. How's that for escalation? People talk of a wider war the wider war started on October the 7th, if not before. The only question is whether we wake up and understand the nature of the adversary. See, you have been warning the world about Iran for decades, I think it's fair to say, and there will be people listening to this thinking, well, look, John Bolton's been wanting to bomb Iran all along. I mean, was this moment inevitable, do you think? Or could, could we have found a different pathway dealing with Iran? Well, it depends on whether you think religious fanatics who took over in Iran in 1979, uh, have mellowed over the years. And the evidence is that they haven't. Uh, the barbarity that Hamas showed on October the 7th, the Iranian efforts, not just to support these terrorist activities all, all around the region and the world, but its pursuit of nuclear weapons uh, and ballistic missiles capable of delivering them first to Europe, uh, but then uh, around the world. I think is all very telling evidence of what Iran wants to do. And, you know, Winston Churchill, before World War II, once spoke of the confirmed unteachability of mankind, the, the unwillingness to learn the lesson that if you deal with a threat early, it's much simpler, much easier, much less risky than dealing with it later. What you're talking, though, about here sounds awfully like the sort of preemptive strike idea, John. And they're you know, killing. They're they're trying to kill us now. What is preemptive of us responding? But I what, said, did we conduct a preemptive strike when when we waged the battle of Midway after Pearl Harbor? Was that preemptive on our part? No, I don't think so. 
But I do want to draw you back to the other story that exists right now, which is concurrently these continuing talks between the Saudis and the Israelis, the Americans involved, looking for a pathway out. And it's quite clear the Saudi position is, look, we are open to normalising relations along with some other Arab states with the Israelis, but you have to give the Palestinians a clear and irreversible pathway to statehood. How much stock do you put in that part of the story that is unfolding now as well as all of the the flare-ups of violence? Well, I think the two-state solution died years ago, and trying to impose it now uh, I think has no chance of success. This would be a victory for Hamas. But why do you think it's dead when those talks are alive and the Israelis are engaged, as are the Saudis? And, you know, I I know you've made comments about where the Palestinian people might go, but I think realistically there are still millions of Palestinians in Gaza, in the Gaza Strip, and no matter how long this campaign goes on for, they will still be there. Well, I think the Israelis are talking because the Biden administration is forcing them to. But I don't think uh, that Israel is going to accept a terrorist state uh, on its border. Uh, If you want compassion for the Palestinian people, uh, and I think particularly for the residents of Gaza, they have to be placed in a viable economic environment. Uh, The Gaza Strip has been a large refugee camp for close to 75 years, and the Palestinians there and on the West Bank were weaponized by radical Arab governments dating back to the 50s and 60s as their objective. Their mutual objective was to sweep Israel into the sea. And if they kept the refugees up close to Israel, that was helping uh, to put pressure on the Jewish state. Now, in fact, refugee doctrine since World War II, the code of the UN Commissioner for High Commissioner for Refugees is that Uh, Staying in refugee camps is the worst answer for refugees. They should either be repatriated to their country of origin uh, or they should be resettled Israel. In this case, obviously, Israel is not going to accept repatriation. Um, um, So for the good of the Palestinian people, they need to be put in a place where they, where the families can have an economic, a realistic economic chance uh, to prosper into the future. Gaza is never going to be economically viable as far as the eye can see. Look, I also remind you that one of the great quotes of Churchill's was it's better to jaw-jaw than war-war. And I, but I, he was successful at war-war. He know, was here's indeed. What I prescribe. <laughs> here's what I prescribe. And thank God for it, huh? Here's what I prescribe. How about victory for Israel over Hamas? But I suppose the risks involved in that are considerable if the place wants to become a normal region. I mean, that's the fascinating sort of... The the Saudis are indicating, and others, the UAE, Bahrain, they are actually fed up with all of this turbulence and blood and and that sense that nothing can ever be solved. Now, are you saying that, that it can only be solved by sort of complete repudiation of someone like Iran militarily? Well, I think uh, the Saudis, the other oil-producing Arab states on the Gulf, see the threat to the region essentially the same as Israel does. It's Iran, uh, which is which is ruled by a continuing revolutionary ideology that threatens the Arabs uh, in many respects as much as it does Israel. 
Uh, and if if the uh, if you don't like the pressure that the Iranians are putting on now, or you're worried about escalating for offending them, uh, let me ask you this question: Would you rather confront the problem today or after Iran gets nuclear weapons? And John, I suppose that is a question for Australia today: is about the way in which we engage with this. Australia has seemed a little ambivalent. I think it's fair to say about involvement in the Red Sea and whether or not we partner more meaningfully with our allies, the United States and the UK in operations there to protect global trading routes. You've said in the past that Australia should be playing a more assertive role. Do you think in this situation, our involvement should be more than a few personnel in the operational headquarters? Yes, absolutely. Let's face fundamental reality about Australia. It's an island. So if you believe in freedom of the seas, as we learned from our forefathers and foremothers in England, defending the freedom of the seas is a global proposition that's in Australia's interest and in America's interest and in Britain's interest. So so what should our involvement be? As much as you can do. I mean, how do you feel about freedom of the seas in the South China Sea or next to Indonesia? That's pretty important. Well, it's pretty important for... Uh, everybody that depends on commercial traffic through the Suez Canal, which is between 12 and 15 percent of all trade in the world and 30 percent of all container ship trade in the world annually. I I think we believe in freedom of the seas because it's in our interest to believe in it, and it's in Australia's interest as well, if I may say so. Uh, In fact, I wonder, given that we're also looking at um, a rather volatile political climate, you know, and looks as if Donald Trump might be the Republican candidate, um, I wonder, because I want to ask you a follow-up question about Australia's response, but on balance, what are you thinking right now, John Bolton? Do you think that he will be able to beat Biden and be president again with all the implications for American foreign policy that that might entail? Well, I'm extremely worried about it. I, I think Biden is deeply unpopular. Uh, he he may be the uh, the only Democratic candidate who can lose to Donald Trump, uh, just as a- any candidate other than Donald Trump, any Republican, would beat Biden. So this is a race that uh, 70% of the American people in poll after poll have said they don't want to see uh, have a rematch of 2020, yet that's the direction we're going in. I'm very worried about what Trump would do uh, in a variety of fronts, particularly internationally, if, if he's re-elected. On that, I think we are both very interested to know your view on this because you've warned repeatedly that Trump, if he's back, would pull the United States out of NATO. We all understand the implications of that. Do you see similar risks for us and AUKUS? Well, I think the fate of AUKUS is very uncertain. I'm, I'm concerned that Trump will carry through on what he almost did in 2018 and withdraw from NATO. And I think any, any alliance as strong as NATO that's in danger means that, that all, all other kinds of arrangements are in danger. And I don't, uh, I don't underestimate the damage that Trump could do worldwide in that regard. John Bolton, we really appreciate you joining us for this first episode of Global Roaming. We, we hope we can have you back sometime. I would look forward to it. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, now, Hamish, I think that was very interesting to hear him flesh out some of his thoughts. I mean, it, 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 mem- remembering him 
about Iraq and talking about regime change and all that was possible, rattling around my head as he was talking about Iran. And so that did temper my um, interest, I suppose. And also his remarks about Palestinians and the fact that, you know, we've got to come up with some other alternative uh, about economic relocation. I found that, I actually found that quite a shock. I suppose the point he's making about a two-state solution being dead, he's not alone in saying that. But I think it's worth stressing that all of the parties that would work with, assist the Israelis and the Americans with finding any solution to this current crisis would not support that notion or point of view. So in that sense, it's a non-starter and, in fact, would be offensive, I suspect, to to many. Uh, What was interesting to me about his comments on Iran beyond his, I guess, repeat of his preemptive strike Mm. doctrine there, I think it's hard to argue with the point that he makes about Iran so far not experiencing or seeing any penalty for mm. what it's doing. Mm. I think that point probably is is fairly close to, to on the money. Uh, Iran, its proxies have felt the punishment, I suppose, or a reaction, but Iran itself possibly not I to think, date. I think the thing is what, what he doesn't say out loud is the nationalism you stir up when you strike homelands. And and that is that is such a critical factor and, my goodness, isn't it on show in the Middle East? So he didn't articulate that now. It, you know, maybe he could in time, but he, he, he is not um, bringing that up as a clear and present danger, which I think it is. And beyond that, what really stood out to me was his comments on AUKUS. I think uh, he's verbalising what many in the Australian government, even the opposition, must be thinking about in terms of the prospect of a, of a Trump presidency and the delivery of what's been agreed under this AUKUS arrangement, some $300 billion worth of Australian investment over the next few decades. Uh, if Trump is willing to walk away from NATO, uh, would he be willing to walk away from AUKUS as well? It's, it's no sure thing, but I think there will be many that would be quite nervous about where this would leave Australia if Trump were to return and start to ask questions about both the spending, the arrangements, the supplies. You know, we might find ourselves here in Australia in a similar position to the Europeans where he's suddenly trying to ex- extract mm. more money out of us in order to, to maintain the, uh, the agreed deal. That was interesting to mm. me. Well, let's just shift gears for a moment, Jerry, because we're going to finish each episode with some recommendations, something that we've been watching or listening to or reading. Jerry, what have you been consuming over the summer? I've been on holidays, Hamish, so I have been actually. I won't rec- <laughs> recommend all the little things that I've been reading, but I will recommend just for fun. Uh, if you go to YouTube, and we'll post it actually on our, on our show notes, uh, there's a gorgeous clip of Tony Blinken like you've never seen him, the US Secretary of State. It turns out he's quite a guitarist and a singer and he actually gets in there and performs. I don't know where it was that it exactly occurred, but it's very different. It's a very different view of this diplomat extraordinaire, a man who's trying to be, and I think you'll get a lot of fun and I do wonder whether it just might be seen in a few of the capitals to which he's shuttling. I, I, I just, I did watch it, Jerry. I don't see it, but anyway... <laughs> I'm, I'm a great fan of Tony Blinkett. So I think he's. I've been. I've, I've met Tony Blinkett, and he's a very charming man. Um, I'm but, sure he is. I'm not sure the guitar does him any favours. Oh, uh, so harsh. My recommendation uh, for this week is a series which I watched uh, over the summer called Ghosts of Beirut, and 
it tells the story of Imad Mugnia, uh, so founder of Islamic Jihad in Lebanon, number two uh, in Hezbollah. Fascinating life story and the CIA Mossad collaboration to try and identify, find him and kill him. It is an extraordinary piece of television, absolutely worth a watch. It's a four-part series. Great. Now, before we go, we do want to encourage a big conversation here on Global Roaming. We want to hear from you about what you think about the world. Maybe you want to suggest a topic for us to discuss. And not, look, it's obvious that you can talk politics constantly, but we invite broader than politics, you know, culture, tech changes, popular culture. It's up to you. You let us know. Global.roaming at abc.net.au. That's global.roaming at abc.net.au. Well, that is a wrap for our first one. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, Hamish. I'm looking forward to it. See you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listener.